This is the Journal of American History podcast for March 2015. Today we're talking with Professor Rachel Cleves, who's an associate professor of history at the University of Victoria. We are talking with her today about her forthcoming J.H. article, What? Another Female Husband? The Prehistory of Same-Sex Marriage in America, which will appear in the Journal of American History in March 2015. Rachel also has a book uh, on this subject, published by Oxford University Press in 2014, Charity and Sylvia, A Same-Sex Marriage in Early America. Rachel, welcome, and thank you so much for doing this podcast with us. Thanks so much for having me. So, Rachel, you begin your article with a story from 1835 that I think listeners would be interested in, and you write that this story challenges the popular assumption that same-sex marriage is a modern invention. So for listeners who might perk up their ears at that, uh, take us, uh, as the good historian you are, tell us a little about about this story uh, and how it does challenge this assumption. Well, the story that I open with is the tale of a young boy growing up in western Vermont in 1835 going to have a suit of clothes sewn by two local women tailors and noticing while he's there that the women are different from the other women he knows and finding out afterwards that these two women were commonly regarded as married. And this source uh, that used the word married to describe Charity Bryant and Sylvia Drake to uh, early New England uh, tailors who are the subject of my new book, this source, which described them so explicitly as as being known as a married couple and being known specifically as a husband and wife within the community, was um, really the smoking gun that allowed me to uh, craft an argument insisting that the subjects of my new biography shouldn't be understood simply as uh, two women who may or may not have been lovers, but as, in fact, giving evidence of same-sex marriage as an understood, if minority, practice in the first half of the 19th century. And I found other sources as well that described Charity Bryan and Sylvia Drake in those terms as being married or as being a husband, as being a wife. The story is that these two women were both born in eastern Massachusetts during the Revolutionary Era, Charity in 1777 and Sylvia in 1784. Um, And I talk a lot in the book about their women's early lives. Sylvia's family went bankrupt in the Revolution. Charity uh, became a teacher and traveled around Massachusetts teaching schools during the 1790s often kind of uh, disparaged in the communities where she spent time because she was too masculine and had questionable relations with other unmarried young women. But eventually both women ended up in uh, frontier western Vermont in the early 19th century and they moved into a home together in 1807 where they lived together for the next 44 years running a tailor shop uh, sewing clothes for members of neighboring communities and contributing enormously to 
the lives of their many nieces and nephews who lived in the region, as well as to the church and, and to their communities overall. Rachel, do you think that that uh, part of the reason they were accepted in the community is that they were they were known, and so their minority lifestyle or relationship, if you will, was really trumped by the fact that that people knew these people, and that this it may have been true throughout uh, communities in in the United States. Absolutely. I think that uh, the individual social power of specific uh, couples had a, a tremendous effect on whether or not they were tolerated within communities, despite their infringement of the social taboo against uh, same-sex sexuality and, of course, expectations that men and women should marry people of the opposite sex. In the case of Charity and Sylvia, they, I think uh, there were very specific reasons why they were tolerated and even, in fact, loved and respected by many people in their community. Sylvia, as I mentioned, had an extensive family network within uh, the village of Weybridge in Vermont where they lived and within the uh, neighboring villages. So she had many brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews and eventually great nieces and great nephews in the in the area. Charity brought something else to the town. She brought a well-known last name. She was, in fact, uh, the aunt of the poet William Cullen Bryant. But even before William Cullen Bryant became a famous uh, antebellum poet and editor, other New Englanders knew of her family. Her father and her grandfather had both been doctors. Her brother was a a doctor and a well-known local politician in Massachusetts, as well as a poet himself. And so she came from a kind of very reputable, if not wealthy, family. Um, and that brought a certain social cachet to this frontier village where she moved and met Sylvia Drake and uh, and set up her life. So yeah, I think personal knowledge had, had a tremendous effect. And you can see that in other examples that I uh, bring up in the essay as well, including uh, the example of a woman who grew up in Martha's Vineyard and then changed sexes and began living as a man at around the age 30 and took a wife and, and went on to raise a family. In that example, you see an unusual marriage, possibly with same-sex resonances, although I put that in the intersex category in the essay, that's tolerated within this very small community. And in fact, obituaries suggest that like uh, Charity and Sylvia, this couple also uh, earned the uh, uh, respect and love of of their community. Here they're tolerated within a very close-knit, kinship-organized location. That's fascinating. And so here you you give us this really rich story at the beginning of, of your piece and then challenge us to do away, to jettison our assumption that, as you write, same-sex marriage is a modern invention. Uh, and then you go on to uh, to note, and these are your words now, American historians have seldom addressed the past existence of same-sex marriage, despite the availability of numerous primary sources recording the practice. Uh, this is fascinating. Talk about why you think this is so. 
I think there are several reasons that explain the oversight of uh, same-sex marriage practices in American history. First of all, I think that for all of us living in the present, it's really hard to escape the almost universal belief that same-sex marriage was impossible in the past. It's just, we, we so expect that. And uh, it's been an interesting adventure for me working on the history of Terry and Sylvia and working on the, the research for this article over the past eight years. Whenever I meet anybody and tell them about what I'm studying, they immediately assume I must be working in the realm of fiction. You know, it, it, it is such a closely held belief, I think, in 2015 that same-sex marriage is this radical break from the past that I think it's been hard for historians themselves to escape that. And in fact, Many of the primary sources that I use in this essay describe the marriages that they're recording as having been impossible. So it's not surprising that even from looking at the primary sources, historians have continued to regard the examples that they have found in the sources as being impossible themselves and have set aside those those you know, minority examples that have come up in the sources as, as being sui generis, as not being part of a larger pattern. And, and I, but I, I was going to say, I think yeah. that there are other really important reasons why um, there has been this oversight. Just a couple of other things. I mean, I think that that oversight is also reflective of the ways in which the contemporary same-sex marriage debate has been so concerned with marriage as a legal institution. And it's, of course, vitally important to us today um, since marriage affects the application of more than a thousand federal laws alone, right, let alone you know, uh, state law. So I think historians have been wary of treating the social fact of the existence of same-sex marriage as constituting evidence of the practice in the past because we've come to really understand marriage, at least in this context, as being a legal institution. And finally, I think that even within the field of, of LGBTQ history, as it's practiced within the academy, there are reasons why historians have not tried to uh, do some sort of long durée uh, history of same-sex marriage as a practice. And I think that's because LGBTQ historians have been really concerned with the historicity of, of sexual identity categories. That's really been a central concern of the field. Um, in fact, some people would say that historians um, of sexuality have a, an obsession with alterity. And I think that that concern makes projects like this essay, which attempt to demonstrate the continuity of same-sex marriage over centuries, appear possibly naive. I mean, it is. <laughs> ah, interesting, interesting. And I, I was thinking as as you're speaking, this is how history becomes invisible, and you then have, as as you note near the beginning of your piece, uh, a Supreme Court justice, uh, what basically saying uh, fairly recently that there is no history of same-sex marriage in America, right? Exactly. Yeah, same-sex marriage is newer than cell phones, um, which is blatantly untrue. Yeah, yeah. Do you think um, before gender and sexuality became the kind of robust and rich categories uh, for historical interrogation that they are now, uh, that when historians looked at these primary sources 
in, in addition to the ways that they didn't engage them uh, profoundly that you've already said, that, that there was maybe just discomfort or people didn't know what to, to do with them as well? Well, absolutely. And there's no secret that uh, evidence of same-sex sexuality itself has been erased in uh, academic history for, you know, for as long as the field was professionalized and really only came to be seen as a legitimate venue of academic historical practice in the 1980s, I'd argue. And there is a strong prejudice against imposing uh, imputations of um, lesbianism or homosexuality on figures in the past. In fact, I, there was some, an article recently that was discussing my book, Charity and Sylvia, um, and I saw in the comments section uh, an angry commenter uh, noted that I should be tried for uh, libel, <laughs> uh, <laughs> for even suggesting um, that uh, my long-dead subjects may have had, you know, shared a sexual relationship. So, I mean, I think that there, there was, of course, a, a long bias against attributing um, uh, uh, any sort of sexual dynamic to same-sex partners in the past, or there was a presumption that two women living together were friends unless one could physically approve otherwise, which is a, an, an impossible standard of evidence that, of course, we don't apply to heterosexual marriages, which we tend to assume were sexual unless we have a very good reason to, to think otherwise. You know, and I think that that high standard of evidence that's been applied to same-sex uh, unions uh, or to um, same-sex relationships is born out of homophobia. And I think that as we come to challenge homophobia in our society, I think uh, hopefully we'll also come up with more creative and capacious ways of reading uh, the evidence yeah. of the past. Yeah, thank you. Uh, let's go back. Uh, you said that one of the ways that historians sort of struggle to deal with this was even the contemporary understandings, and you you suggest this at a number of points in the piece that that these are um, impossible relationships. Uh, your phrase is the persistent logic of impossibility. Tell tell readers since you brought this up, and it's such an interesting uh, thing. Tell listeners, uh, I should say, what you mean by this, but the persistent logic of impossibility and how that plays into the the challenges of engaging this kind of a story. Well, one of the challenges for me in constructing this essay was finding a way to draw together the very different sort of unions that I'd collected without erasing the differences between them. How did I balance continuity and, and alterity? And one common thread that I found in many of my sources, as I mentioned, was that the same-sex marriages in question were often described as being impossible or surprising or stranger than fiction. And if you read, you know, one or two sources that use that sort of language, you might take that language on face value, but gathered all together as a body of sources, I came to see those descriptors as being or not just descriptive, but as a type of label, a shorthand that signified same-sex marriage itself. And I think there's a parallel here to the way that historical sources often describe same-sex sexuality as being, you know, the mute sin or 
the love that dare not speak its name or the crime that can't be named. And in these instances, historians have understood that those allusions to silence aren't actually indicative of the lack of speech, but are actually descriptive themselves. They're indicating the presence of same-sex sexuality so that calling something the love that dare not speak its name is a form of naming, ironically. Mm -hmm. And I think that the same... Um, bears out with these descriptions of same-sex marriage that describe the marriages as being impossible marriages or stranger than fiction, that those are actually forms of labeling that do uh, important conceptual work that, that ironically indicate the, the possibility of same-sex marriage over the centuries, not the impossibility that this, this persistent logic of impossibility, in fact, was a way for the dominant society to acknowledge exceptions to the heterosexual rule of marriage without breaking the category itself. So it's a kind of logic that allows for an uneasy toleration while uh, preserving the sex and gender hierarchies that marriage uh, that marriage creates. That's really smart and interesting. So r- real but not possible, huh? Yes, r- impossible uh, as evidence of possibility. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really good. Uh, you you mentioned just now <clears throat> the uh, uh, wide range of um, marriages that you looked at throughout our our history, not bound to traditional uh, definitions. These other kinds of relationships that capture a kind of lived reality is your phrase. Can you give listeners a sense of the spectrum, this wide range of of relationships that you've gathered? Absolutely. I I think uh, a lot of work in the field of the history of marriage has dealt with marriages that, in fact, fall outside of uh, the legal definitions of marriage in the past. And uh, and in general, historians have been, I think, very um, uh, keen to recognize and integrate those varieties of uh, of marriage into our, our history of marriage overall. And uh, for me, the first thing that comes to mind is the history of slave marriages. And we know, of course, that enslaved people couldn't legally marriage because they you know, were legally categorized as chattel rather than as persons. But nobody can doubt the lived reality within slave society that enslaved men and women did marry did recognize each other as husbands and wives, and were recognized by whites as husbands and wives as well, that there was a sort of legal fiction of denying slaves the right to marry that preserved slaveholder power. But we as historians don't feel constrained by that legal fiction to disregard the lived reality of, of, of slave marriage. And I think Another great example is bigamous marriages. So in the centuries before legal divorce became easily accessible, men and women still ended unwanted marriages at times by moving away or abandoning each other, something that was quite easy to do in you know, the age of Western expansion. And so historians have recognized these self-divorce practices. And of course, although self-divorce wouldn't give a person the legal right to remarry, People often did so anyway, including you know the seventh president of the United States, right? Who married Andrew Jackson, who married uh, his wife Rachel Jackson while she was still legally married to her first husband. Um, and historians have debated 
exactly uh, um, whether or not Andrew Jackson and Rachel Jackson realized that her first marriage had not uh, been legally, um, or she hadn't secured a legal divorce by the time they'd married. The way I read that example is that they they knew perfectly well that she wasn't, I mean, Andrew Jackson was a lawyer, they knew perfectly well she wasn't legally divorced yet. And in fact, the marriage itself was a way of pressuring her husband into completing the legal divorce that that they wanted from him. So again, we know as historians that many of the marriages uh, that people entered into in the past didn't satisfy the legal definitions that you might find uh, in various uh, state codes or even, um, you know, in within common law. There were interracial marriages in states where interracial marriage was illegal. There were marriages between spouses who were underage. But we see all of these forms of marriage, even though they might be legally dubious as belonging within the the history of marriage. And I'd argue that same-sex marriages, which didn't satisfy, uh, you know, uh, civil codes defining marriage as uh, an institution between uh, a man and a woman, nonetheless need to be integrated into the history of marriage, which uh, should treat marriage as, as a social institution, a social reality, as well as a legal reality. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Let me uh, take you now uh, through these sectional roadmaps that you give readers. Uh, we can just go through them and maybe you can say just a little about about each one. Uh, you've certainly touched on stuff from, from many of these already, uh, and this will give listeners a sense of how you've kind of broken up uh, into very helpful sections your piece. Uh, so first you talk about conquest narratives. Tell us a little about that. Well, I should say that the reason I chose to organize the essay by theme rather than chronology was because my my goal in the essay was to create a sense of uh, continuity over the long span. Um, and I thought that um, I wasn't looking to make an argument about how same-sex marriage has changed over time from the 16th century to the 20th century, although there is a sense of change over time, nonetheless, I think, in the essay. But I was really looking at trying to get a sense of the continuities between over you know vastly different time periods and really over vastly different populations and over vastly different spaces. And so I do begin with looking at primary sources, giving evidence of uh, same-sex marriages within the framework of conquest narratives, because those are, in fact, the earliest examples we have from American history dating back to um, this you know, early 16th century encounters uh, between Europeans and, uh, and indigenous peoples in the future United States. Uh, what I found in the case of conquest marriages, I found a lot, or conquest sources, I found a lot of use of terms like strange and impossible, but I found curiously that those uh, descriptors were repeated <laughs> beginning in, as I said, in the early 16th century, straight through into the 20th century. It's like, it just comes up again and again and again, you know, with each new, each new quote-unquote discovery by some sort of, uh, you know, settler or merchant or uh, army surgeon or whomever, uh, explorer, 
whatever, whoever the person is, you know, each white author who encounters a indigenous same-sex marriage practice in a new venue starts, you know, anew by describing the the marriage as strange, surprising, and uh, you know, and impossible. And it was really thinking about those that kind of repetition of the conquest marriage or the conquest sources, which I think first got me thinking that that maybe this uh, material about impossibility was was descriptive rather or was labeling rather than descriptive. But I did find that in those conquest narratives, I found that this logic of impossibility could be very flexible, that um, it could be used as a rationale for violence, uh, dispossession and exclusion, or it could be used in a more accommodating way to uh, uh, take note of a strange practice that was tolerable. Uh, It really depended on who was using the language, who was writing the narrative. Yeah, good. Thank you. And then the next uh, roadmap you give readers, the next theme taken from your title, of course, Female Husbands. So I have a lot of material in the essay about female husbands, which is most directly connected, of course, to the subject of my book, Charity and Sylvia, um, in which I do make the argument that uh, Charity Bryant fits uh, somewhat within this category of a female husband. So the female husband was a popular, roguish, working-class antihero in Anglo-American literature from about the mid-18th century onwards, very popular in American newspapers in the 19th century, um, and uh, continues to appear in American literature even in the 20th century. I found the material on female husbands, which uh, which was rich, gave me a lot to think about how gender operated in the construction of, of same-sex marriages in the American past, I was struck by the lack of the opposite category in the sources of male wives. And it suggested the ways in which I think hierarchical ideas about gender made some forms of same-sex marriage more tolerable than others. So it it was understandable why a woman might want to put on pants and seize male prerogatives. It was disreputable, but um, it wasn't wasn't surprising to many. On the other hand, uh, for a man of the late 18th or 19th century to give up uh, male prerogatives to put on a dress and to assume a you know, implicitly to assume a receptive role in sexual relations was, uh, was, was constructed as repulsive or repugnant, I think, to many at the time. And curiously, that might seem like a gender system that uh, was operating in favor of, of women in this case, although I think that the, the larger truth of it is that it was the, the implied assault on male prerogative that made um, the notion of a male wife so repugnant. So it was, it's a system that was preserving um, uh, the, the patriarchal hierarchy that organized American society. That's fascinating. Thanks, Rachel. And then uh, your next uh, theme, intersex marriages. So I found in those sources which seem to be talking about a, a 
um, marriages involving a spouse who uh, we would understand today in the modern category of intersex, I found that um, these uh, marriages were characterized as being even more impossible than same-sex marriages. And ironically, same-sex marriage became the kind of fulcrum against which intersex marriages could be uh, could be could be rooted or you know for in order to understand same in order to understand intersex marriages uh, sources often said well it's like it's almost like a same-sex marriage so that was uh, that I found very fascinating there's only a few sources uh, I think that I discuss in that section but it was interesting to see how um, how same-sex marriage could actually make intersex marriage legible. Mm, mm. And your next-to-last theme in the piece, fictive unions. So I found a lot of fictions about same-sex marriage within drama, within uh, political rhetoric, within uh, short story writing, uh, within local, local theater practices. Um, and often these fictions had a degree of the carnivalesque. So uh, fictions about same-sex marriage were often used to ridicule or um, uh, poke fun at, at hierarchies, at class hierarchies, or poke fun at people in power. But then these fictions also seemed compl- complex to me, and I think the way that carnivalesque sources often are, that they can both ridicule and then also at the same time express or imagine effective desires, right? And I think that, I mean, I I suggest in the essay that the carnivalesque fictive marriage gets taken up to a certain extent within emerging same-sex subcultures in the 20th century. And I think that hints at the way that something like a womanless wedding which is, uh, um, I have a, I talk about this community theater practice in the piece a bit, and I think the photo of um, a womanless wedding is on the cover of the issue, right? So I think things like womanless weddings could both be used to make fun of uh, people in power in a community, and at the same time, maybe give some leeway for men who um, experience same-sex desires to imagine those possibilities and to express taboo, erotic orientations. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, modern subcultures. Well, I thought it was really interesting that uh, according to the survey distributed by One magazine in 1961, about half of the respondents answered that the they either were or had been in a same-sex marriage uh, at some point in their lives. And, I, and it indicated to me how extensive the subcultural practice of same-sex marriage had become within um, emerging you know, lesbian and gay communities in America by the middle of the 20th century. And in fact, one of the uh, refrains that was heard uh, at the Stonewall riots was that we have the right to marry too. And the way in which it was voiced wasn't sort of, we demand to have this right, but we have it. We already have it. So, um, so I end the article 
around 1970 when you see the, I think, the emergence of the first sort of organized legal efforts to turn same-sex marriage from a social practice into a, uh, a legally recognized institution. But I think that when that struggle begins within the context of the gay rights movement of the 1970s, it's not reflecting some sort of pie-in-the-sky aspiration, but um, it's coming out of the daily lives, the social reality of these uh, communities that have taken shape. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Rachel. Um, so is this project, both the piece for the journal and, and your larger project, the Oxford book that came out last year, have you had a chance to think yet whether this is a springboard to yet another project that engages these kinds of uh, issues? Uh, or is your next project going to be something very different? Well, I hope it's a springboard for other people. I, I hope that when um, other scholars or popular historians or genealogists or whomever come across examples of same-sex marriages in their sources, that this article will be a resource that will allow them to contextualize, to not put aside uh, those stories as sui generis. And I do think there are a lot of other stories and histories of same-sex marriages in the archives that uh, are out there to be told. And I I really hope that, um, that this project, this essay and the book give encouragement to uh, scholars to, to tell those stories because I would love to read them. <laughs> so, so I hope it's a springboard. As for as for me, I I'm working on various things. I'm quite interested right now in the history of food and sexuality and the intersection between those categories. So I have a I have a website. It's rachelhopecleaves.com. It's called the Not So Innocents Abroad, where I've written about. Uh, some of my thoughts on the intersections of the history of food and the history of sex. And uh, we'll, we'll see where that takes me. It's a very interesting and very colorful website, too, I must say. Thank you. Um, well, Rachel, thank you so much. Uh, it's a it's a rich and valuable piece that I, I do think, we all think, will, will be a springboard for other historians doing just the kind of work that, that we ought to be doing. Uh, so we've been talking today with Professor Rachel Cleves, who is Associate Professor of History at the University of Victoria. We've been talking about her March 2015 article in the Journal of American History, What Another Female Husband, The Prehistory of Same-Sex Marriage in America. Rachel, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. To join, call us at 812-855-7311 or visit us online at www.oah.org. In addition to receiving the journal four times a year, OAH members have access to a growing number of member benefits, ranging from discounts on a wide variety of insurance products to discounted subscriptions to the ACLS Humanities eBook Library to reduce registration fees for the annual meeting held every spring.
Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in June for our next episode. If you have any comments or questions, please send an email to jahcast at oah.org.